Hello and welcome to Chatty AF, the anime feminist podcast. My name is Vry. I'm the managing content editor here at Anime Feminist. You can find me sort of kind of on the hell site and occasionally on Mastodon at Writer Vry. Technically, I suppose folks who are part of the Patreon may recognize them from our bonus episodes, which you can get for a mere $5 a month if you want to hear the team's spicy thoughts on Made in Abyss. Uh, But for the first time on the main feed, we have uh, joining us new team member Tony, as well as seasonal mainstay Peter. Hi, I'm Tony. Go by the them pronouns. You can find me on Twitter at at poetpedagogue. I'm not actually a poet, but um, thought it was a cool name. I am now a contributing editor at Anime Feminist. Um, I would say most of my responsibilities are going to be towards podcasting, but yeah, happy to be here. Yay. And I'm uh, Peter Phobian. I'm a manager of YouTube content strategy at Crunchyroll, and uh, I'm Pete at Peter Phobian on Twitter. All right, and this is our mid-season podcast. For those of you who haven't joined us before, what we do is we start at the bottom of our Premiere Digest, which will be linked in the show notes, and we work our way up. We don't cover uh, ongoing shows and sequels on the mid-season because there is simply too much to talk about, but we will make sure that we talk about them if you come back for our season wrap-up which is when we sort of get more into the meat of shows that we've been of ongoing shows that we've been watching in the background. So starting from the bottom, we will try not to spend too much time on these series. In fact, we don't really need to discuss this at all on a content level, but I would like to shout out Kamikatsu working for God in a godless world. It is still fully a pit of shame series on a content level. But if you are somebody who is interested in titles uh, that are production disasters, this is an all-time example. Oh my god, it's melting in real time, and also Megumi (laughs) got there. Well, is it a disaster, or are they just hardcore memeing? No, I refuse to believe that, Peter. Never Mm. attribute to evil what stupidity will answer. I don't know. The, I know the author uh, of the original work has uh, a tractor as their Twitter banner now. So you know what? If they're leading into it, I salute them. Yeah. It is a trash Garbo show, but boy, am I watching it. Yeah, it's entertaining in its own way. It's it's very for, special. For way. those of you all who are not aware, um, the the tractor is a reference to. There's an episode where there's a character who's riding a tractor, and they just have a, a um, filtered image of a real tractor. A real tractor just driving along and with an anime face on the person who is driving it. It's rotoscoping, it's bad artifacting, meets really stiff animation. It's so much. But again, if if you are going for the production disaster elements, please do be aware that this is a show that uh, has a lot of content around uh, sexual assault, sex slavery, uh, funny pedophile character. It's not a good show. Yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Mm-hmm. Moving up to things that are also kind of yikes, but at least have more going on. Tony, you are currently the only one keeping up with uh, Tengoku Daimakyo. Uh, there we go. Uh, which is also known as Heavenly Delusion in the official uh, translation of the manga. Yeah, which has been coming out for a long time under the title Heavenly Delusion. So... Thanks, Disney. 
I, I am a, I'm, I'm current on the series as well, though. Glad to hear we'll have two perspectives on this mess um, because it's a mess. And I feel like it's a very controversial mess because a lot of people really like it, but I am like of two minds about it. Um, I already kind of, if you go back and you watch and you read the um, three episode digest, um, you'll get a lot of my general feelings about the show, um, especially the body swap. Um, so if you want to read that, feel free to, but. The general gist is that it is um, a messy choice that um, could go either in the direction of just being a total disaster that ruins the show or, like, just interesting explorations of gender fluidity. The, the problem is that Kiruko or Haruki... I, I cannot remember all the different things go, they go by. It's too much. They are consistently subjected to gross sex stuff that I just really wish they weren't. Like, over and... Especially from Maru. Okay, so, like, when I first watched the Sister Body Swap episode, right, like, after the trauma backstory, um, their their co-protagonist, his name is Maru, and, yeah, they, they normally have this really fun, silly, kind of, just kind of ribbing each other dynamic, where they're just kind of constantly making fun of each other, and I really enjoy that. But after the Sister Body Swap episode, their dynamic got a lot more gross because Maru's reaction to it was weirdly possessive, right? And, like, basically... And when I first watched it, I was extremely grossed out because, like, Kiriko just told this really horrendous, terrifying story of being forcibly put into another body of his sister. And Maru's reaction is basically like, oh, wait, that means I can't get it in, can I? To be vulgar. Which is, like... Yikes. But I, at first I was like, okay, well, you know, it's a messy reaction to a messy, weird situation that no one would actually deal with. Fine. But then Maru starts, like, over and over again trying to, like, non-consensually kiss Kiruko. Like, it had already happened before, but it just gets ramped up. Like, at one point, like, Kiruko kind of offers to let Maru, like, fondle her breasts as kind of like a joke kind of ploy to get Maru to do something dangerous. And then Maru takes it way too far and way too seriously. And the way it's framed is really interesting because it like is from Kiruko's perspective and you're seeing Maru like be like a creep, but in from her perspective, but the way the soundtrack is and the way the framing is makes it seem like it's done for laughs. And then Maru gets like sexually assaulted himself. So it's like this show has a problem with sexual assault that I really was not expecting from the first couple episodes and is really starting to destroy my enjoyment of it. And I'm, I'm really worried about the direction the show is heading. It's really not fun to watch characters who are gen- like non-binary or, gen- or who are gender be subjected to this kind of violence um, without the show seeming to have any idea what to do with it. The other characters, right, like um, the, the, the school storyline is... Really, I I find it to be, you know, the more interesting part of the show in some ways because it seems to be, like, exploring gender fluidity in a way that seems almost like... On one hand, it feels very, like, warm and showing gender and sexual fluidity as, like, just a natural part of growing up and also, like, not confinable by authorities because the authorities are trying to confine it and they're failing. Or, at the very least, they're noticing it and they're kind of like, what's going on here, right? Like, 
but also I'm concerned that it's going to go, it's starting to feel a little bit like queer child zoo, you know, kind of like how mm-hmm. some people critique certain like cute girls doing cute things shows as being like girl zoo. This feels a little bit like queer child zoo where it's like a bit voyeuristic in a way that I'm starting to get a bit concerned by. But I also think it reframes the Kiriko storyline in a really interesting way. So I'm, I'm just of two minds about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one that uh, I'll go ahead and tell y'all at home. We're planning to do its own podcast on and y'all can't make me watch it until it's over and I have to do it for that. So it, it's it's okay. We'll, we'll sort of peel the skin off this thing once it's over and we can kind of see where it ended up. But yeah, it sounds like a lot. I really just, I just really want my boy Tokyo to be okay. I really want him, them, I don't know what their gender is. It's not clear, but I want them to be okay. I want them to be happy. I want them to kiss that other boy and for them both to be happy ever after. But I don't feel like that's going to happen. This doesn't seem like that kind of show. (laughs) No, it feels, this is very made in abyss. I would. I was going for. I was thinking more Wonder Egg, perhaps, because I feel like a lot of the concepts that it first brings in seem to point towards some sort of greater awareness of the themes that they want to introduce in the story. But the further it gets, it it seems like I think the entire subplot around Kiriko being a boy put into his sister's body is like, what if a man could be sexually assaulted? was the author's a brilliant idea for that character as some sort of like environmental horror. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I do think uh, like a lot of the world building is really interesting. Uh, I, I, on both sides of the story for me, uh, definitely elevated by like the really great production it's getting in the anime as well, but also like a central like tenant of the story that I think is really like one of the focus pieces is the uh, camaraderie between Kuduko and Maru, which I mean, I'm ahead of the manga, at which point I'm, I'm kind of not feeling it anymore because Maru is just kind of relentlessly trying to non-consensually kiss or grope Kiriko at this point. And uh, like, it's like retroactively, like, I, I watch the anime now and I'm like, oh yeah, they really have a good back and forth, but just like knowing it's going to, it, like what we're seeing now it just is not an exception. Uh, he's not like course correcting after finding out that Kiriko, I guess maybe uh, like as identifies as a man, uh, he just keeps leaning into this. Uh, I'm romantically interested in you, even though uh, Kiriko has made it clear that they don't feel the same way. So uh, it's hard to enjoy their kind of like buddy dynamic, even at this point uh, in episode six with like the, the latest event uh, at the hotel. And I'm, I'll just spoilers, but it gets worse and worse. Yeah, that hotel scene really ruined the show for me, but I'm not, I already kind of spoiled what happens in it, so I'm not going to go in after it yeah. anymore. But yeah, it, this show is a lot, and it, it, you know, imagine that you're on a road trip where you have to rely on somebody else, and that somebody else is aggressively trying to sexually assault you every day, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like... That sounds not fun, and yet that's supposed to be the dynamic that we're buying into as as like a fun, silly comedy thing. But and usually the sexual assault is played for laughs, and I hate it. Yeah, that is that is rough. So we're gonna have to put a pin in that for now and keep it moving right along. This uh, next show is the Sacrificial Princess and the King of Beasts, which 
did not have an episode check-in because it aired a lot later than the other shows. Uh, Tony, you watched some of this one, although I gather it was very not for you. Okay, here's my thing about it. It it really is doing that shoujo protagonist who is, like, very kind and empathetic and self-effacing and doesn't believe in herself, but then she has to have somebody who believes in her and protects her, you know, even as she believes in everybody else and supports them, right? So it's like, you know, kind of lesser Toru vibes, you know, because I loved, I think Toru's a fantastic protagonist, but this is like her, but like without any of the things that make Toru interesting. My problem with the show is really just, the central conflict of the show is that she is a human in a, in a beast world where the beasts have you know, are effectively, like, you know, have this hierarchical, like, nation-state that is above the human nation-state and, like, forces the humans to sacrifice a a human to to them once a year, which, like, so it's, like, there's a clear hierarchy between these two, like, you know, countries, right, or these two societies. And yet it really wants to do that, you know, fantasy racism thing that, all of these, a lot of these fantasy racism shows love to do, which is to say, oh, can't we just get along if we see that they're, like, the same as us? Colorblindness, you know, or colorbasedness, whatever term you want to use. But, like, it's very much, but that's not how racism works. Racism is about, and, and especially when there's, like, you know, one society's clearly exploiting the other. And watching this character just kind of be, like, incredibly self-effacing the whole time and like be totally okay with being consigned to a palace and like you know her fighting back is just cute I guess and like she has to kind of be told that she deserves to not like be like literally eaten it's not for me it just really isn't and I am somebody who likes yeah I don't know I just I and I don't think it has is interested in the psychology in the way that I've heard, for example, Ancient Magic Bride is, like the psychology mm-hmm. of such a character. Yeah, I think uh, of the Monster Fucker uh, series, Ancient Magus Bride is probably the most uh, strongly written character one. I was, uh, I would also say, I said it when Sugar Apple Fairy Tale was doing its nonsense, and I will say it again now, of the... Megas Bride also rans, I guess let's call them. That I, I um I still remain weirdly fond of Tale of the Outcasts, even though I still need to finish it, so grain of salt, but from what I've seen, which is about two thirds of it, it does a lot it, it has a slightly better grip on doing the whole yes, this is a fantasy about being, you know, a frail uh, young protagonist who is being protected by this very strong monster who, you know, is terrifying to everybody except for you. Uh, but it has, I don't know, I, I feel like a little bit less gross about it and a little bit more thoughtfulness. And it is at least trying to cut its, oh my God, fantasy racism with demons, with classism and some other thoughts and using, uh, positions of women in society so like it's still doing all the shit but if that is the kind of itch you're looking to scratch for i think it it's might be a better one than this yeah it's interesting because i, I remember when ancient mega spider was coming out uh d and i especially uh, came down pretty hard on the ending of season one and now uh 
we're getting this this glut of new shows and you can't help but go like man ancient mega sprite was really doing a lot of stuff <laughs> really well, and well i mean in in fairness ancient mega sprite i also fell off of it because it it is such a good character show that is strongly written and thoughtful enough that you can't really just brush over the power imbalance which it kind of tries to do so yeah i i feel like i understand more getting frustrated with it versus a show where it's like all right this is the archetype we're doing and either that appeals to you or it does not you know yeah. Yeah, I think a, a weakness in a lot of these that I found is I just really don't feel like the, there's anything interesting about the the girl because they're just perfect and uh, like kind of alarmingly young looking in all of them too, given the sort of relationship dynamic that they're setting up. Whereas Chise had much more to offer in terms of actually being the main character. It's like it was about, it was like a character piece rather than uh, just a story about a dynamic that they liked with a character who was really just going to uh i guess um kind of unapologetically perform emotional labor for the monster guy mm. yeah yeah this show feels a little bit less like the characters actually doing any um, like important emotional labor for the protagonist uh, excuse me for the you know beast husband so far and more just like she's kind of um Coming in like a whirlwind to the monster court. Exactly. Like she's kind of this disruption to the space, which I guess is again where like that, like kind of fruits basket, you know, um, comparison could work. But like without any of the kind of interesting, like it, it always feels like, oh no, a human is here. Oh wait, she's a nice girl. That, that makes it better. Or alternatively, oh no, a human is here, we must And then the king, like, takes her and hides her away and protects her. Which is just, Mm -hmm. like, very rote and uninteresting in terms of how it is representing, like, fantasy racism. Like, honestly, we could do an entire podcast on the everything that is fantasy racism. But today is not that day. (laughs) Because it's a continual problem in a lot of media. And in a lot, there's just been a a spate of them in anime recently. For now, uh, we will leave that aside and head up to my love story with Yamada at level nine, uh, with Yamada-kun at level 999. Alex is still keeping up with this one. I ended up dropping it, not because I hated it, but just too much other stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. And their their sort of check-in opinion is, it's, it's nice, it's good when it's good, basically, but there are these frustrating background elements in their three episode check-in they talked about the fact that it was setting up uh yamada's younger sister is jealous of akane and wants to sort of muscle her out of the guild and of course we have two female characters they have to be in competition and so that plot line ends up with them becoming friends which is great Uh, and clearly this is like a lonely little girl who wants friends but on the way to that uh the younger sister basically sets Akane up to be cornered by a stalker and the show kind of plays that for comedy and that that kind of sucks uh-huh I have heard from folks in the discord that once the that eventually the manga does even out uh, and find its footing and it just 
kind of stays in that those stronger moments it's exhibiting but i just don't have the patience to wait for it to get there and i imagine some other folks uh, might feel the same in such a strong season which is a shame peter any uh thoughts to add uh yeah that kind of summarized it and and now that uh, the little sister is friends with akane i think she is now invested in her getting together with yamada and has done things like push her into them which knock them both over and hurt them because to set up like rom-com type goofs uh, so I don't, I'd say it's, it's good that they're friends, but also it's getting very tropey and hammy right now. Mm-hmm. Overall, I would say I enjoy the show and I, I like a lot of the characters, but I would really like if we could know anything about Akane herself behind, besides the fact that she's just like a real nice girl. I feel like we know more about every single character in the show. Um, there's just like a lot that should be developed where it, it feels like it's sliding into a more tropey area now. Although it's encouraging to hear that other people say it gets better later on. I'm going to keep watching it regardless. Right. Rock on. Uh, Mashal and Magical Destroyers are both shows that you had sort of vague glints of being anti-authoritarianism or anti-authority sometimes for a second. So I wanted to just check in for a brief second to see if there was anything interesting going on with those, especially because I really hated Magical Destroyers. I hated it a lot. Uh, Mashal, I mean, the whole structure is just so that he has people to fight. That's it. I, 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 it's got nothing to say. And it's got one gag, which is Mash surprises people by being really strong and beating up a wizard guy. Uh, that's really all that happens in that show. Oh, and it's just wholesale ripping off harry potter like there's a sorting hat unicorn skeleton they have different houses uh they call things almost the same thing they have quidditch which is called duello look if people want to watch if people are so desperate to not read another book that they want to watch an anime version not written by a turf so be it yeah i guess yeah you could say it is harry potter except rather than becoming a cop he's beating up cops so uh (laughs) it does have that going for it i guess there's that yeah uh does it have muscles though? Oh, it doesn't have muscles. Yeah, he uses hamstring. Why is it called Mashley Magic and Muscle? He has no magic, what? but he is extremely fit, so he just punches wizards and knocks them out, or slaps their spells aside, or flies his broom by kicking his legs so hard that he levitates. That kind of thing. That's the joke. That's the only joke. All right. Yeah. And uh, Magical Destroyers, anything? Is it still just relentless, here's all the things that I think are cool in anime, and now they're in my anime? Um, I, I, I need to catch up a bit on it. It, it is kind of doing this, the, like, kind of this... Uh, I've seen it done before. I know examples come to mind where it's kind of like, this is... there's uh, How do I even describe it? Like, people kind of think Otakodom is weird, but... Uh, there is something to be said for like the passion people find out in these like various interests and they hyper focus down on different ones, like guys who like doing model race cars. I think what it's shooting for is the idea that in an effort to promote the idea of of normalcy or uh, like to be in a, a functioning member of society or model citizen, you have to give up these passions, uh, and be normal and, uh, not, not be able to like, uh, feel this kind of passion for this kind of frivolous hobby. Uh, oh, like so it's weak sauce complex age. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, it, it's trying to do that, and it does seem genuine in that desire. Yeah, um, that's fair. 
I think uh, it, it just is all, it's really weird. Um, I am kind of just enjoying how early Gynaxy it feels. Um, yeah. But that's, that's kind of a me, <laughs> uh, a, a specific, well, me and a lot of people that I know uh, mm-hmm. appreciate that kind of aesthetic and drive. Um, but whether, I don't know if I could say the show has anything truly substantive in it. And it, it definitely does a lot of weird slash, kind of problematic shit so um has it introduced any women who aren't sexy magical girls um pretty much all the otakus are guys except for the girls who are magical girls no there were some girls at the one magical girls like sex drug cult but besides that yeah not too many ladies outside of that there's Uh... something going on with the magical girls and the the villain woman uh, but that's kind of TBD right now. Right. All right. Uh, let's leave it then because we got to be moving along. We're almost at the 30 minute mark here. Uh, I got a cheat skill in another world. That's nothing. Dead Mount Death yeah. Play. <laughs> I want to spend just yeah. a second on because I managed to write the entire uh, premiere review, not realizing that this was an adaptation of uh, Narita work, uh, who folks at home may know as the author of Bacano and Durarara. Uh, which explained some things and also uh, piqued my desire to keep up with it. And I will say, I I am enjoying mm-hmm. it. I think that he has a real skill for writing characters who are very archetypal, but making it feel refreshing. I will say, I'm very proud of him. His stories are just relentlessly heterosexual, but for this one, he's discovered that lesbians exist. Now, the only way he could think to introduce these lesbians, uh, who, by the way, are the woman who runs the bar and also gives these assassins their assignments, uh, it's her and she's dating her two bodyguards. The only way we could learn this information was to see them uh, in their lingerie doing foreplay in the bedroom. It's the only way. Yep. But, yep. you know, I'm glad for her and her two her, two girlfriends. <laughs> They're fun. That's the thing with this series is yeah, like all the character, the female character designs are annoying. They're really annoying, but the, the characters themselves are a lot of fun. Um, Misaki in the premiere review, I sort of called her discount, you know, which is unfair upon reflection. She is more like if um, Amane Misa was written by an author who wasn't a relentless misogynist. So she's kind of ditzy, but really strong kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, very violent. It's sort of doing something. I don't know how far it intends to lean into it, but it's definitely got an element of we're hanging out with these assassins and killers, uh, but the cops are much more bloodthirsty and callous kind of thing going on. We'll see how much it sticks to that, but I don't know. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious how anti-cop mm-hmm. it's going to be because the cops definitely have not been nice guys so far. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of sucks that the one brown skin mm-hmm. character so far is is the it's extremely got, yeah. violent uh emotionally dead cop uh but you know Mm -hmm. uh yeah uh i'm surprised how much i'm enjoying this one same here yeah i was very unexpected it seemed super edgelordy like isekai at the beginning but uh then you find out that the necromancer skeleton is kind of just a uh uh, a nice dummy boy who wants to (laughs) who wants to make little children's ghosts happy (laughs) it's very unexpected turn of events I have no idea what the overall story is reaching mm. for yet. It's what the objective is. I don't know where this is, any of this is yeah, going. Yeah, it's. It, uh, I, I mean, I assume it's something to do with uh, Polka's family. I should have known that this was an Arita work when there was a character named Polka Shirohama. Shirohama. Yeah. Uh, but 
yeah, it, and it's two cores, so there'll be time to find out. All right, moving on. Dangers in my heart. I am so annoyed that this has turned out to continue, like, it's kind after he realizes that he likes her in about like episode three, it basically drops the, the murder fantasy shit. That was my biggest complaint with the opening. What a singularly unpleasant five minute opening that this series has. But it, from there, it where the series is at now, it's kind of cooled down into he's an edgelord in that he's written an embarrassing you know, Chuni wish fulfillment isekai novel in his notebook, and he wants to go to the job fair day at the coroner's. Like, it's extremely yes. relatable, frankly. <laughs> it's embarrassingly oh. relatable. And not the coroner. I, it's it's so cute. It's a stable career. <laughs> my my, yeah. my partner, who did most of a cor- of of a degree in that field, uh responded with it's really boring actually the thing that i do want to shout out with these later episodes other than is i think it's trying to do something really interesting with sexuality in terms of you know there are a lot of series right about teen romance that break down either to they're really g-rated and fluffy which is a great thing to have like those are really nice shows and i like them or shows that are about like sex and horniness are often really sleazy fan service fests, right? Mm. That are about the male gaze to the point of being kind of dehumanizing uh, to the female characters when there's a male protagonist. This series in the last episode or two has really tried to tackle this anxiety uh, that Ishikawa has about so like one of his classmates tells him, oh, I knew I had a crush on this girl because I couldn't jack off to her anymore. And so he starts getting anxious, like, oh, no, I thought I liked this girl, but I'm still like having fantasies about her. Does that mean I don't really <laughs> like her? Is this just like teenage horniness? And I'm like, oh, child. And I, I feel like it is. Yeah. It, and it has, even though um, even though we're really trapped in his very limited perspective, I feel like the writing itself partly maybe because it has a a female author has really smart character writing for the women. And you really strongly get the sense throughout that these two both like each other. They're just bad at conveying it in very different ways that are at cross purposes. It's, it's really sweet and nice. I think after skip and loafer, it's my favorite boy girl romance that's going on this season. And I'm very offended about it. (laughs) (laughs) It, it's nice in that a lot of times when you have like tall girl, tall, sort of confident, flirtatious girl, small, shy and awkward boy romances, a lot of them traffic in big age gaps like uh, mm. Sashi's Monstrous Appetite or Beauty and the Feast or even Call of the Night to an extent, although that mitigating vampire circumstances. Uh, this one, they're classmates. So it's it's still kind of got that dynamic to it, but it doesn't kind of have the under uncomfortable undercurrents, which is nice. I will say uh, the most recent episode, which is seven at time of recording does have like an entire eight minute bit dedicated to, to boob jiggle, which I didn't love. 
Oh, that's a, a considerable. Push it, yeah, it's it's that's like, uh, yeah, it's oh no, oh no, track and field day. Oh, um, yeah. okay. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's interesting yeah. thinking about like what you were saying earlier about like the dichotomy between like these very male gazy and like romances, and then these very like cute and fluffy like ones. Because like when I think about, I I really do wish there were more shows that would like acknowledge that sex exists. And is actually a really interesting topic in in romance, without like it becoming hypersexualizing. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and by the way, we don't have to include this necessarily, but um, mm-hmm. depending on how much time we have. But um, like when I think of something like um, my dress up darling, right? It mm-hmm. it really treads the line. It really walks the line between like being having certain moments where most of the time really staying true to like, you know, sex exists and is on these teenagers' minds and is part of the reason that they are dating each other. And and then it just slowly like veers off course. And I I want more shows that are able to walk that line more effectively. Tony, have you watched Humana's first time yet? Because you'd really enjoy it. Oh, I, I I've watched about five episodes of it and I, I definitely really enjoy it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, that it's a great example because I was actually going to bring up My Dress Up Darling because that's a series where I had I really enjoy the manga, but I had to drop the anime because the fan service feels so leery. Whereas with Dangerous in My Heart, there is a little bit of boob nonsense in a couple of scenes, but it feels it's annoying, but it doesn't feel skeevy necessarily, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? It's like. Okay, yeah, this is yeah. yeah, but it's I don't know. I think it it comes closer to doing the thing that people always try to to say about shows like these with and with debatable amounts of accuracy whereas we're just observing the character being horny. It's not about leering of the the objective camera, if you will. And I think because this series is so frequently will go episodes at a time with no fan surface at all, I think it is coming closer to hitting that sweet spot. I don't know. It just—it's nice. There's a fat character, and she's adorable. Although I wish the poor thing wasn't constantly having diet anxiety. But I don't know. It's a nice show. In fairness, all the other characters keep telling her she's very cute. So that's nice. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I'll check it out. Um. All right. That is enough time to spend on that one. We are going to hop up and do a very quick check-in on uh, why Riliana ended up at the Duke's mansion. P- Lizzie. Peter, I know that you mentioned uh, you are current on this, right? I'm uh, probably an episode or two behind at this point. Yeah, close enough. Um, so, well, <laughs> Lizzie watched five episodes, um, and they checked in that it's definitely they were really struggling with the fact that the animation continues to be pretty rough and pretty stiff. Uh, it feels a lot more restrained. Than the Mahua, which they're a fan of, um, although they, there is a, uh, a queer-coded hairdresser character in episode three that's apparently a lot more restrained and respect, uh, respectfully handled than uh, in the source material, which is nice. And uh, there's good com, uh, you know, there's some good chemistry uh, between the main couple, and we're kind of moving into. Conf- uh, conflict after the main hook of the she has to avoid her death flag as you know a reincarnated character 
But uh, I think their ultimate takeaway was this is unfortunately one of those um, female oriented series that is good and worth reading, but maybe you should just go to the source material, which is too bad. There are too many of those. Yeah, I don't know if I have uh, too much to say on it now. I'm kind of used to them not uh, receiving the best adaptations uh, most of the time. Um, I think Aureliana just has some more dynamic scenes where that sort of uh, issue with production really shows more like a ball where everyone's Mm -hmm. dancing, you know, know, that kind of stuff. I do also like uh, it's Nick uh, is the, uh, like, I guess, hairdresser, fashion consultant, cosmetologist uh, who saves Aureliana from uh, an evil countess by sneezing and saying bitch at the same time several times. Uh, what <laughs> so uh, everybody needs a, a fantasy gay best friend i guess he he handles the countess while uh so really can uh, uh go elsewhere and continue on her mission uh i i do think the story is um a bit more uh interesting or i don't what should i say there's a lot more like uh set in conspiracy uh that she's working through uh than a lot of the villainous stuff where uh uh, there's the, it, it's like very gamified in the beginning mm-hmm. of those usually, um, which has kind of pulled me in more than the other ones. Um, I haven't really read the, the, I think it, it's a, uh, yeah. web comic. Cream uh, comic, yeah, right? it's a web too. So mm-hmm. I, I don't. Okay. So I also can't, I, I'm not sure how great the art is on that one. Um, maybe I'm really missing out. Uh, but so far, um, as far as like, uh, reincarnated as the villainous stuff, I'd, I'd say it's, uh, it's pretty comparable to, uh, some of the other ones I've seen so far. Maybe I'm a bit more interested than I was initially in other ones like uh, Villainous. Yeah, so if... if I guess they all have Villainous. Yeah, they have the, so if, if folks want like a, a Villainous yeah. anime that's maybe a little bit more dramatic courtly intrigue, it might be worth checking out if they don't mind slightly stiff animation or at least checking out the source material because we like to see things for girls do well. Uh, Otaku Elf is, there is not a lot to report on this one, except uh, Alex and Chiaki are both really enjoying it. Uh, It's a nice show. Uh, It's uh, Koito, who is the assistant, manages to get her own friend so that she can show off her gremlin-liness, which is, you know, nice. But, and it's not, uh, her relationship with Elda continues to be really warm and pleasant, but it's more like, older woman and niece rather than a sort of shipping age gap sort of thing. And it's also got some speckled bits of uh, history lessons about Edo era Japan and uh, some stuff about Kansai as well. So if you're interested in like gentle comedy with uh, a tiny, tiny bit of edutainment on the side, then this might be a good one. It's, it's one that looks really nice. I just simply have not had time. That is where that one is at. Uh, moving up the list hell's paradise is so much it's so much peter do you have quick thoughts on this one yeah i guess uh i mean i've been enjoying it so far i think its author has kind of specialized in short manga and jump or jump that or stuff that just gets canceled quickly uh so i i think uh hell's paradise is a pretty um uh, well, a very short manga as far as Shonen Jump titles go. And then it's 13 go. volumes um, long. Yeah, it's like a self-contained, I guess about as long as Demon Slayer actually, right? Um, so uh, similar length, I have no idea how long it's going to go on since I haven't read this one ahead. But I, I am kind of interested 
and the uh, kind of duratagonal uh, relationship between Sagiti and Gabimaru. Um, I have been very nervous at several points about her just becoming someone that he needs to constantly protect while she sorts through this issue that you only see in female characters where they don't want to fight because they're worried about killing people, which uh, none of the male cast suffer from in a combat series. Um, But episode six, I think she kind of got to step up and I hope they maintain that momentum rather than just making it sort of like a reminder that, Oh, she can fight if she has to. And I mean, in fairness, it's, Um, I think, you know, I, my bar for Shonen Jump battle series is on the fucking floor, but I think that this series mm. is at least trying to keep her and Gabimaru's stories parallel uh, with, with this story about, with the sense that he also is very troubled by the amount of killing he does and just, did a lot more of it before her and sort of had already reached the place that she gets to by episode six, which is nice. They are, I I like that they have a completely platonic relationship, which I think will hold firm. I don't know. It's nice. Um, I like that he's a wife guy. A lot of this is just restating my uh, three episode stuff, but it, it, and you know, it's, it's the most my bar is on the floor thing ever, but at least I, I, I appreciate mm-hmm. the effort that Sagiri's uh, character arc it is her mentor dying. And I think somebody in the discord said with his dying breath, realize saying, I realize now the gender essentialism is wrong. <laughs> Was I wrong? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I mean, it is kind of stand out. Like you, I, one of the things you can appreciate about Kaiju number eight is that the main character is like 32. And in this one, it's the, that the main character is like happily married, uh, just trying to get back to his wife who he loves very much. Uh, that kind of stuff really stands out when like every single other main character is like a 12 to 14 year old boy who usually has a crush or is just completely unaware that sex mm-hmm. is a thing that happens. Uh, one of the two. So that that is refreshing in its own way. Yeah, and I, I, I do like Saigiri a lot, so I'm hoping that she gets uh, some more spotlight time. And I do think the series has some interesting ideas uh, with this, this like, crazy island it's put together. And uh, what do they call them? The hermits or the travelers that are on it? I think it's got some big, like, Buddhist themes that it's mm-hmm. building upon. Um, and generally... I found stories where they're kind of like searching for the, uh, I I think there might be like a better component of the story in that they're kind of uh, being suicide squatted onto this island for the, I can't remember if Stamper or Shogun wanting to get the elixir of life, the absolute like kind of criminality of the premise and like how they might circle back on the reason why they're all on the island and (laughs) maybe kind of some kind of justice Mm -hmm. uh, in, in all of this chaos. You know what I mean? I, I do also, you know, golf clap for the anime that uh, even though Yuzuriha has sort of the the flashy, you know, revealing uh, Kunoichi costume, the anime doesn't do a lot of skeeve with it, which is nice. And I really mm-hmm. like Nurugai. Like, she's precious and adorable, and it's nice to see um, a Sanka character depicted, you know, whenever anime does stuff with uh, indigenous Japanese peoples, that's always really cool, I think. And I want to protect her. She is small. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in what the series has planned for. Mm -hmm. I I am. I'm not, I haven't read all the manga, but I am sort of reading ahead a little bit. Like I think the anime is currently halfway through volume three and I've read through volume four. 
this anime is doing something with gender, but I'm not sure whether it's good. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the feeling. There's definitely gender stuff happening. It's just what is it going to be good gender stuff or bad gender so stuff? So I think because we're running a little late, no. we'll leave that for now until we get to the end of this. Mm. I assume it'll adapt the whole thing. I don't know. It's it's Mappa. Uh, so we'll just put a pin in that for now. Uh, Galaxy Next Door is still uh, adults talking through very tropey things like adults. Uh, yes. Yeah. Dee pretty much uh, described the whole thing. It's a kind of introduced a super problematic premise, but it couldn't have happened to more nicer communicative people. They're talking through their feelings. Uh, they're it, essentially he's become kind of like her magical slave, but uh, they're both trying to find solutions and keep each other's feelings in them in mind and maintain open line of communication. And they're very considerate of each other. Uh, so uh, despite the fact that they're in this really problematic situation, both of them are just being the, the best people they possibly could. And it's very kind of interesting and touching to watch them work through problems like that. Also, his two younger siblings are really cute. Rock so. on. Good for them. That's great. Uh, Tony, you've not yeah. got a chance to talk for a minute. So Oshinoko, how's it going? Um, I, I am enjoying Oshinoko. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily my favorite of the season, but it's definitely one that I'm enjoying. So I think I'm really enjoying the renewed focus on Ruby and Kana as characters. Ruby is continuing to be, like, you know, kind of... I wouldn't say necessarily uncomplicated, but, like, her motivations are she wants to be an idol, and she's living out that, and, you know, the characters around her are trying to support her in that dream, and she's kind of running into the the challenges of the industry. And I, I found... I, I'm enjoying that... Just getting her... Getting to watch the show, like allow her to indulge in that dream without, like, pooping on it yet, you know, in the way that you might expect, like, uh, like it to with, um, you know, given how wild the first episode was, right? Um, Kana is one of my favorite characters in the show. I mean, I like all the characters, but Kana, I find to be very complex. I find I think it's interesting how she's trying to work within these systems to like maintain her integrity as an artist. And that it it takes seriously like her intellectual like engagement with acting and art making. I really ap- appreciate this show and the way that it looks at performing arts in general. Um I would say um, Aqua remains kind of kind of an edgelord. Definitely not my favorite part of the show, to be honest. Um, I don't care for him. Yeah, he's he's just kind of. I I don't I do care about like him finding Eyes Killer because I care about Eyes as a character. I thought she was fantastic, but right. honestly, I'm really much more interested in in all of the women that surround him who are often bisexual and often very you know or at least implied to be oh yeah ruby ruby has a crush on several girls yeah i don't know if she's had a crush on a guy yet i <laughs> really don't think she has <laughs> so it and not that that would invalidate anything but like it, it is very refreshing to have such a like pretty explicitly queer like female co-lead and also have it not be weird about it I don't know if I trust like that. Uh, she's definitely okay. 
I I do not know that they won't turn around and be like and call it admiration, you know? Yeah, I don't either. That's absolutely true though. Like I wanna believe There was definitely a boob staring moment where Ruby was like, Wait, I'm staring at this girl's boobs, I must stop. Which is like really it's gonna be really weird if they try to like rug pull and be like, actually that was just her viewing that person and thinking what a great friend she would be. And no, like, no, 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 it's just because she must be. Tony, Tony, no, it's because she's jealous because of her own boobs. Don't you see how women work? I've been burned many times. I'm going to be so mad if that happens, but yeah. I, I like it. It's fun. Production value is pretty high. Dogakaba has not Dogakaba it yet. Yeah, I'd, I'd co-sign all of that. I think it is an incredible line to walk to really... A hammer home that this industry treats young performer women and particularly young women like shit without saying that these young women we're following are foolish or stupid for wanting to pursue these dreams you know it's very couched in look you need to know all of this and learn to protect yourself but it's the reason but your desire to do this is still admirable and and sincere and i don't know i I really dig that. Like, that is sort of what I've always wanted from an idol anime, is that honesty without being edgelord and shitting on these young girls, you know? I feel the exact same way. Yeah, I, I think that I think that for me, I, I, I find it intensely relatable as somebody who used to be a theater performer, right? Um, and I had to stop because of, like, all the things that the show is about, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because of you know, the industry's inaccessibility to disabled people and, you know, objectification and, like, body, you know, f forcing you to, like, contort your body in certain ways, you know, and, like, all the different things that the show critiques. So I really yeah. love that. But it's really lovely to kind of watch the character, like, see a reflection of myself before I got kind of jaded. <laughs> but also, yeah. like, want to kind of, like, protect you, Ruby. Ruby, just keep doing what you're doing, but also, like... Be careful. You'll, I, I, I don't think she's entirely naive about the system. It, it is interesting that there there is that cross-cultural connect, though, because there's an interview uh, that Akase did this week over on ANN where he talked about the fact that a lot of what he was interested in uh, talking about the Japanese entertainment industry is how much it's about power dynamics more than anything else. Uh, and the way that the, mm. the fact that there's really no way for individual performers to advocate for themselves. And it's about, you know, uh, mm. company power dynamics. Yeah, and it, it's really pointed that the show is definitely not kind to its um, male men in power. I mean, there's a, occasional moments where a man in power will, like, see a, per see a person being really talented, like, and, like, acquiesce to that person, like, you know, shining in the way that that person wants to shine, right? Or, you know what I'm saying? But usually mm -hmm. they are out to, like, it is very blanketly describing how those men, like, objectify and traffic in and take advantage of these girls. And without, while also not denying girls agency in how they respond and how they fight back, you know, without being unrealistic. And that, that's a hard line to tread. I, I am a little bit nervous that 
now that Aqua's on a dating show, we are heading into, I believe, the arc that was at least somewhat inspired in response to um, Kimura Hana's death. Uh, I'm a little anxious about that, but we'll see. Oh, yeah. I forgot. That's that's one of the first things I ever heard about Oshinoko. I, the thing is, I like when the show goes really dark. I really liked the, the first episode, which was really grim. But it's I not that it's dark. It's don't that, want it to that, become Dark Edge Lord. <laughs> well, it's that her death is saying? so recently in li- her death is so recently in living memory. I feel like that's a harder needle to thread um, than than this general gestalt of issue. You know, this was a specific and recent incident. Yeah, it could feel a little too soon, both too soon and a little bit too um, not really respecting her memory if it goes wrong. Yeah, I, we'll see. Yeah. Um, but yeah, on the whole, I think we're both really, really enjoying it. Um, and that's another one that could easily fill an hour. We'll see uh, what folks are interested in. So many hours in a day. All right. Uh, moving up to Insomniacs After School, which I am the only one who is still watching, and I am only doing it for you, folks at home. It's not a bad show. Um, there are still moments here and there where it comes back around to the mental health stuff. And at that moment, it's honestly still pretty compelling. Uh, in the most, like recently, uh, the he has to deal with, you know, this teacher who is slinging a lot of casual ableism at him about like, you know, well, if you can't sleep, you should just work out during the day and that'll tire you out. And if you still can't sleep, then it probably means there's something wrong with you. And that, even though it seems like something that should obviously be wrong and he lashes out, it still manages to get in his head and, you know, just piles on this anxiety and stress about it. And, um, you know, she is talking about part of the reason she can't sleep is because when she lays in bed at night, her thoughts race and she has a lot of anxiety. Um, and I really like those quiet moments where it is talking about these things in ways that feel very naturalistic. Sometimes there are cute cats. I enjoy their senpai who, uh, I headcanon as a trans girl because I have a lot of time on my hands. Look, she wears knee socks and a choker and she works at a game arcade. I don't know what you want from me. But I think the trouble is that it's never a bad show. It looks really nice. They're really nice kids. But there are these long stretches in between the things that make it special where it's just going through the motions of being a a grounded school anime and I'm bored because I don't dislike these kids, but I'm not exceptionally invested in them as people just when they're doing regular school things. So yeah, I, I think uh, for people who are um, especially into the genre, there is something here uh, it might be worth checking out. I'm personally just keeping up with it for work. Yuri is my job. I have so many feelings, too many feelings about does one of you want to start? I love this show so much. This is without a doubt my favorite of the season. <laughs> I love all these girls. They're disasters. It's really, really explicit. Like, I mean, it's not explicit in the sense that, like, Yano is canonically autistic, but it really is about kind of neurodivergence in the sense that these are characters who process the world incredibly differently, right? And both of their, like, ways of processing the world are making, are kind of making them dysfunctional, right? Um, Because they're teenagers and they're messy. And what I really, really love about this show is just how much they have, they realize that they 
they they have to work together and talk about things to make it better, right? And it's super interesting how the um the cafe, the the Yuri Cafe kind of provides a space for them to work through these feelings through using these tropes. Like you could write a whole like thesis about like this through the lens of like drama therapy and like you know how playing these roles and trying out and like trying out different ways of communicating that are from like the the stories that we've been told both sometimes really works for them to help them talk through their problems and then sometimes just makes it so much worse mm-hmm. and and i find that incredibly compelling just watching these characters like very publicly trying to work through their feelings and also put on this performance. And as somebody who like does emotional labor all day for my job and is constantly surveilled and like, and, you know, rumor gossiped about like in various quarters as a teacher, um, I could get into that. but I don't feel like it. I, I find, I also find that really compelling in like how different kinds of ways of moving through the world are just, seen differently when you're in an emotionally laborious job right and how certain people are just consistently pushed out of those kinds of jobs not because they're not competent and not because they're not they don't have emotional intelligence or whatever but because people just lack empathy for certain neurotypes you know for for people who are autistic and you know because they've been conditioned to right and I think the show is doing a really good job of kind of critiquing that and like, especially with the main character, like realizing that she has to reject that wholesale in front of everybody if she is going to actually have a relationship with this other person. And that is, I don't, I just think that's so beautiful. I, I love that so much. I guess I'm spoiling it. Did I spoil it a lot? I don't it's it. fine. You're fine. <laughs> We for the finale, like when we do the finale, we try to keep things broad so that we're not, you know, heavy mm-hmm. spoiling shit. But for the mid season, I, I figure it's a little more lax on it because you know the show's not over. I love them. I just, I am so this series is so catnip to me specifically that I feel myself whenever people very reasonably the show is not for them, and I understand that, and I feel that, and that's fine. And I'm going to fight them. Um, no, you're all fine. I love you. You're fine. Um, but it's it's fake dating plus kayfabe plus meta uh, satire. I don't know what more you want. <laughs> um, as far as uh, Yano being canonically autistic or not, I think it's one of those things, right? Uh, I and I mentioned this one on the Witch from Mercury pod, but you know you have those things where like the care, um, especially with neurodivergence you have like characters where they get a you know you have the diagnostic terms you have characters who are meeting a very extensive list of criteria and this is a major factor of their character and then you have uh, and it seems you know purposefully something they're focused around and then you have characters who there is this that they have these set of traits that fit into a semi-broad cluster, maybe even accidentally, that makes for a really good headcanon, which is where Suleta lives. Uh, And I feel like Yano is very in that she never gets labeled autistic. She isn't diagnosed, but 
I just don't know how you could be doing anything else with her character when so much of what's going on with her is the fact that she's blunt. She doesn't understand double meaning. She can't read the room. She's very black and white and interested in fairness. I don't know. As somebody who wasn't diagnosed until adulthood and um, especially as somebody socialized feminine, uh, not everybody likes that term. I get a lot out of it. it. I get so much out of Yano's uh, struggle to learn to mask over the years. Like her, she's one of like three really strongly autistic coded characters who just like hits me right in the feels. I, I love that this series in some ways is doing kind of the same thing that uh, Magical Revolution of the reincarn Genius Young Lady and Reincarnated Princess was doing, right? Where you have um, a character who is not fall uh doesn't fall within the norms of ascribed femininity and is rejected because of that and then you have the character who fully conforms to expected feminine behavior to a t and is possibly even more miserable like i i find that kind of shit so interesting absolutely so fucking smart like she hasn't really gotten a focus yet outside of being an enta level stalker but the fact that Kanako is this character who is every gay best, pining gay best friend you've ever read in a manga, where you you want to shake her and say, you need to get over this. Yes. I really want Kanako to get more focus. I'm really curious what Kanako and the Garu are, what's going to happen, because there's got to be something that's going to happen. There is. I'm very excited for it. Um, I, I kind of like, the series feels a little bit like you took all these different archetypes, right, that I find really interesting and really messy, and just are like, it's almost like playing with Barbie dolls, and you're just like, now kiss! And you just, mm -hmm. <laughs> just, you, you smash them together and then see what happens. It, it really is like, but like with like this deep psychological complexity to each of these characters. And, you know, at first I was like not super convinced by the adaptations dialogue, the, the dialogue, you know, the, the adaptation of course was series composed by the same person who did the back half of flip flap, which, you know, was like, okay, uh, not right. my favorite part of flip flap <laughs> um, and citrus. So I was like nervous and like, I found the dialogue at first a little bit stilted, but I feel like around episode five and six, the, it really fell into a groove where it was like, now we are writing super compelling, realistic dialogue that, and I was, and I, and it just sold me. And I was like, okay, this adaptation knows what it's doing. I felt, I, at around episode five and six, I felt very squarely this adaptation is, it, it, it's, it's going to be good. Yeah. What, once they did, I was, I was on board even slightly earlier with four when they did the uh, flashback stuff uh, and it really nailed that. And that really set um, any, my concerns at ease. Like, that episode's really, if you hit episode four and don't emotionally click with it, this series just isn't for you. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's good. We have to move on, but I'm sure we could talk about this a great deal more. I'm really looking forward to where we go from here and also slightly nervous because the arc, the, the emotional arc that is starting out now with Yano and Hime is still ongoing, and I don't know that there's a good break for it. So we'll see. Mm. We'll see. I really hope that, I'm, as you were saying, I really hope it gets a second core or a second season or something. I need <sighs> it. We'll die. 
Right. <laughs> it will truly be in like the toilet by Hanako Kun, Land of the Lustrous, Bloom and TU category if it does not get that. I will be like. <sighs> Anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- Skip and Loafer is. Is there. So it's a really good show. But because it moves at such like such a sweet and fluffy, unhurried pace, how much is the, um, what do we want? What would you like to add on top of your uh, the the check in? I think that on top of the check in, well, in the check in, I talked a lot about the kind of ways that the girls' relationship has been his like in the show prioritized more than like the uh, the romantic, you know. Um, relationship, and I found that really compelling. I'm really glad to see Mika getting more development because, you know, I think that she represented this, like, very specific way that women, like, are internalized misogyny to this point where, like, everything that they do becomes uh, becomes about conforming to, like, societal expectations of what a sexually attractive, desirable woman is, and they then judge everybody else by that same metric. Because it's like, if I have to put in the work, then you should have to put in the work, you know, kind of thing, right? She's she's definitely one of those kinds of characters that I find really compelling. But I also, it, it is interesting, though, that, like, she, we get this flashback, and then it's revealed that she used to be fat. And it's like, well, and it has this very explanatory nature, right? This explanatory power, like, well, she was fat, and then she dieted a lot, and now she's thin. And now she has all of this. And I think it's realistic in the sense that, like, oftentimes, like, doing that kind of, like, dieting and, like, all that stuff is really bound up in this, and can be can be traumatic and really harm your psyche, right? And, like, yeah. to be feel the pressure and social exclusion to the point where you change your body that much from fat phobia would... She definitely doesn't seem happy after that. She does not. <laughs> and... it's interesting. I also think that, like, without other fat characters, right, it it does leave me wondering a little bit, like, is that really going to be the only engagement with, like, fat phobia or just fat characters in general that we're going to get over the course of the show? But I know that's such a minor thing, but it was something that I, like, noticed. No, no, that stuck out to me, too. Like, I I have sort of a bugbear with ex-fat characters narratives because uh, maybe because my older brother is an ex-fat who still has a socially acceptable eating disorder where he uh, freaks out if he eats more than a certain number of calories and has to run five miles a day or he's unbearable to be around and now it's fucked up all his joints as he's getting into his 40s anyway this shit makes me angry but when talking about narratives around fatness I, i always try to be especially uh, in anime, I try to be cognizant that like, it's in a different place, you know, fat phobias in a whole different snarl in Western media. And like, there's so few, we're getting a couple more like positively depictive fat characters, but I feel like this series so wants to be, it, it, it's sincerely trying to be warm and empathetic and isn't it, it? And like, it was cruel what happened to Mika and it's clearly, yeah. um, and responding to that has clearly made her unhappy and stymied her relationships with others. But yeah, at the same time, it's like, well, she used to be fat. So we don't have to deal with fatness on screen now and a person being happy while fat, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I think she's an interesting character for various reasons. I I feel like even her interest in Shima seems more objective focused, like he's the most popular boy and she, that is the reason she's trying to attain him. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it does kind of get 
I, I don't know whether they really have uh, a, if there's any greater plan for how her previously being f- fat is wrapped up in all this, or it was just a, a component to this backstory that they've created for her to indicate that she's uh, transformed herself to a great degree. You know what I mean? Right. That, that she denies herself and yeah. that's like a key component of her character. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, like, on one hand, it's, like, realistic to have characters who, like, never really fully grow in the way that they need to to fully accept themselves. And, but I also feel like Skip and Loafer is not that show, right? <laughs> like, otherwise, I, I, like, otherwise, Skip and Loafer has been very much about characters who are trying to learn how to connect with each other, like, in a more profound way, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, move mm-hmm. past their biases and move past their like social silos that you know confine them like that that seems to be the overall themes of the show is like recognizing the ways that how you've you know these ideas you've internalized about yourself can like harm your relationships with other people and then like finding ways to like actually connect by moving past those like we see that in a lot of the other characters as arcs and i find that really compelling and beautiful I just want to see that happen with Mika. I just want to see her. Like, I feel like we're starting to see that. Well, yeah, uh, she's got that great relationship with uh, Naocha and developing now, where Nao's kind of uh, become her uh, mentor <laughs> or something and, and Instagram friend. Uh, I, I think that was a really great direction to take Mika's development. Naochan is so good. Naochan. Like she recognizes so much of herself in Mika, and, and kind of is just like, I'm going, to, I'm going to fix them. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I, uh, I when you were talking about with uh, like unsiloing yourself, I thought that was uh, the the character who just basically said, "Yes, that is what I did." Yuzu, I really like her for it's, it's strange because she basically just said what the concept was, and that she had already accomplished it, and that she was a popular kid in her other school had realized that like hanging out with popular kids she just had to act a certain way which didn't feel true to herself so she specifically changed schools so that she could seek out a friend group where she could be more genuine and that's why she ends up with the main guest it's just like yes this is the concept and i am the first to achieve this goal uh but for some reason i found that very like i don't know uh, uh great about the character uh, that she just kind of flatly stated that that's what she'd already done. I, I like her a lot. It's a good show. And it, it's one of those shows where the writing is so good and kind and thoughtful. You keep finding yourself reaching for more things that it can do. And that's valid. And also then you have to balance that with like, just appreciating the lovely things we have at our hands. Yeah. Hate Narumi though. Mm. Who? The actor guy who keeps trying to force Shima to become an actor on in the acting club or the a play club or whatever that mm. club's called and uh, outs him as a child actor after he explicitly said, don't do that. And I feel like he's supposed to be a jokey fun character, but he just seems like an asshole to me. This show and queer characters, this show and queer characters, right? Like I, I admittedly have not watched episode six. I wish that I had before this because I feel like I would have a lot to say about like the weird camaraderie between cis women and trans women and like trying to like navigate misogyny and trans misogyny and the confluences between those two things. Um, which sounds like that's where like the arc with Mika and now is going and like hearing about that makes me super fucking excited because like that's something I think about a lot, but um. I think that, like, uh, you said, is his name Harumi? 
Narumi, the the glasses guy. Yeah, glasses boy. Um, he at first I was at first when I watched it, I'm like, oh my god, he's compel- He's like, he is me. He is me, and I'm like, oh no, he is me. Oh, oh no, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> just where it's a little bit like oh god this is like me through a funhouse mirror and also like not super duper like developed in in the ways that i wish that he was you know like because because a queer like a queer you know gender fluid character like that could 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 be such a compelling character like if taken seriously in this kind of grounded you know uh, slice of life comedy show, right? You know, I mean, I'm but, sure that he also has a secret deep backstory, as uh, we just might not learn about it for six more volumes. But I mean, these are all not invalid things, but I think very small things because the show is so good. It, would yes. you two agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's literally like so nice and sweet. It's like painful almost. <laughs> it's like achingly sweet yeah. show. Yeah, I mean, even everything I was saying about Mika, right? Like. And Harumi is like, God, I keep forgetting his name, but anyways, I, I still find it compelling. I still find like all of that stuff compelling. It's just messy. And I actually like mess and I wish I, I'm curious to see where the show goes with those elements. I just want to make sure that I just want it to go in a nice way. (laughs) I think uh, strong feelings come from strong investment. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm I just, I just want these yeah. kids to be okay. <laughs> yeah, so, like, do give this one a watch, folks at home. Uh, we are way too fucking long. It's fine. It's fine. All right. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, that is our check-in on an extremely packed season. Thank you so much, Anna Fam, for joining us. If you liked what you heard, you can find more from the team by going to animefeminist.com, where we have articles and podcasts for your perusal. If you really liked what you heard, consider going to our Patreon or our Coffee. Um, they are both slash anime feminist. Patreon is where we pay for our daily costs and where we uh, are able to pay our hardworking editors and transcribers, pay to keep this content up. And Kofi is where we do our aspirational goals, things like merchandise designs for our store, which we have, by the way, at animefeminist.com slash store, or paying our contributors more because they all really deserve it. And every little dollar from y'all at home really helps. You can also find us on social media. We are on Twitter, Tumblr, and Mastodon at Anime Feminist. And we are also on Instagram at Anifem Site. Uh, come find us and tell us your thoughts. What are you watching? Is there something you're really feeling about that we sort of glanced over or didn't have time to cover? Please do tell us. And if not, we will catch you next time, Anifem. Bye.